Our scripture this morning comes from the Gospel of Mark. We are in chapter 12, beginning in verse 13 to go through verse 17 this morning. Again, that's the Gospel of Mark, chapter 12, verses 13 through 17. It's found on page 1008 in your pew Bible. Uh, I know last week John told you it was like 1034. Um, and I, I was on the other side watching virtually from Texas, and, and I said, help him out, Ruth. Help him out. <laughs> so, is on... It, he, what, what happened was he found the actually the only old pew Bible that was here in the sanctuary and not one of the new ones. And so he, he wasn't completely wrong. He was just, you know, Baptist wrong. <laughs> All right, let's hear from the Lord this morning here beginning in verse 13. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trip him up in his talk. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one, and he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. And Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. Here ends the reading of today's scripture. If you would, please bow your heads in prayer with me. O holy God, May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Have you ever found yourself in an instance where, where maybe you ran into someone unexpectedly or maybe that you decided, yeah, let's go hang out with the pastor in a different setting outside of the church, only to find yourself sometime in that interaction to say, oh, I'm, I'm sorry, Pastor, I, I forgot you were here. Maybe it's because something slipped or something happened, right? Kind of showing that, oh, oh, this isn't really how I live my life. I forgot my pastor's here. I've got to be in church mode, right? You laugh because it's true. I say it because I've experienced it with some. And so, you know, it, it leads to pastors not being completely popular to go and hang out with and have around all the time because it kind of just messes up the kind of fun you can have. But Jesus here, Jesus in this scripture, he's, he's still at the height of his popularity, right? They couldn't just go and arrest him right now because he was far too popular. The crowds would turn against the the chief priests and the scribes and the Pharisees who would turn against the Sanhedrin or would turn against Rome. And so they got together, the Pharisees and the Herodians, who were diametrically opposed, they got together to go and try and trip Jesus up, to try and reduce his popularity and his renown among the people. Now, these are two groups that couldn't be any further apart. The, the Pharisees, they're, they're known as separatists. 
They, they were the strictest of religious among the, amongst the Jews. They, they wanted to separate. They were very legalistic in, in what you had to do and what you could not do and what falls in bounds and what falls out of bounds. And, and they teamed up with the Herodians, an unlikely pair, because the Herodians were the very least religious amongst all of Israel, for they had forsaken their own religion, their own faith in God, and hitched their wagon to, the, to King Herod and to Rome and to reap the benefits of being under the Roman Empire. And so there are the Herodians, there are the Pharisees, and there's Jesus. And Jesus is causing quite a problem for the Herodians and the Pharisees, for they have this anxiety over the way Jesus teaches and the way he leads. The fact he came in and flipped everything upside down in the temple from the way they were doing it. He did it three years ago, and he does it in Holy Week, where he goes in and he flips the tables for the money changers who were selling salvation at their tables, essentially, by selling the animals to go and be sacrificed. They had turned the temple from a house of prayer to a den of thieves, as Jesus called it. But they thought if they plot together and they can get Jesus and go up there and ask him a question and get him to make a statement, declaring that, yes, you have to pay taxes to Caesar. Every, you know, Caesar's in charge. Then he would lose popularity among those who were very religious. And if he went and made a statement that was anti-Rome or anti-Caesar, then Rome and Caesar would be very mad and they would handle it themselves in getting rid of Jesus. Now these two polar opposites groups, they come up with what they think is the perfect trap. The first of many that we'll see come here with Jesus. And so they Go together, it says, some from the Herodians, some from the Pharisees. They go to Jesus and they ask him this question. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Now, oftentimes, this scripture is used so, so that we can understand that there is an authority of government, but that the authority of God trumps the authority of government. But there's much more going on here than simply that. For they ask this question, do we pay taxes to Caesar or not? They think they've got Jesus in this perfect trap, that there's no way out, that if he doesn't answer, the silence would be deafening amongst the crowd, and that there is, they couldn't foresee any good answer that would not make some people upset that, he was, that were in his crowd. But Jesus, being the Son of God, the Word, the truth, Answers with truth. He asked for a coin, for a denarius. Now, the denarius is a coin that was to be paid. It was the tax to be paid to Caesar himself. For everyone who was alive under the Roman Empire owed Caesar a tax. And the coins that were paid had the face of Caesar on them and the declaration of his name. That was the inscription of who he was meaning that this coin doesn't actually belong to you, even if it's in your possession, it belongs to Caesar. And so Jesus looks at the coin, and he says, Render to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God the things 
that belong to God. And it tells us the crowd marveled. I mean, it was a mic drop moment in Jesus' teaching. He's there in this temple and everyone, all eyes and ears are on him. For you see this coin, it bore the image of Caesar. And and, and so therefore, it, it belonged to him. It wasn't wrong to pay taxes to Caesar. However, not all things belong to Caesar. And just as the coin bore the image of a man, you bear the image of God. We're told in Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and and 27, that every human is created in the image of God. That isn't how we live our lives. We live compartmentalized lives. Whether it's in different boxes in our brain, how we live, or different files, or we've organized it as we organize the apps that are on our smartphones. We compartmentalize our lives, right? So so Sunday mornings, they belong to God. Sundays at 1 o'clock belong to the Jaguar. Saturdays are for the gators or for the dogs. Monday through Friday, 9 to 5, well, that belongs to my employer. And then we have family time, we have friends time, we have gathering time, and and we compartmentalize our lives, and how we live and how we interact is different in each and every single one of those settings. Our life's compartmentalized. It's divided up. And it quickly becomes a life devoted to many things, but not God. But in Jesus' answer, he says, essentially, give Caesar his money because it bears his image. It's his. But your devotion belongs to God because you bear his image. You're his. Not only does Jesus tell us this, but all of Scripture affirms what Jesus is teaching here in the temple in response to the Pharisees and Herodians. Paul will write in a letter to the Romans, and in the 12th chapter, verses 1 and 2, oft cited as the most transformational Bible scripture that turned people's lives around. He writes, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. The apostle Peter agrees with him. And when he writes his first letter in the second chapter, verse nine, he writes, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of the darkness into his marvelous light. 
But the thing is, we struggle to actually devote our whole living to God. It's a war between our flesh and the Spirit of God within us. Paul writes about it. I do the things I don't want to do, and I don't do the things that I want to do. There's a struggle in the way that we live. And, and instead of integrating God, instead of weaving him into the everydayness and into everything we do, we mentally compartmentalize our lives. We box him out. And we do so without realizing our true motives behind it. Because by boxing God into Sunday mornings or into only church time or being around church people, then it means that, yes, we love God, but kind of we really love being in charge of ourselves more. And we actually like being Caesar and God of our own lives. We don't want to belong to anybody except in those certain times. And so coming to church and, and worship or, or Bible study and only that in your lives and nothing else for God becomes a bit of a check mark to complete. A way that we think we're balancing the scales of our own sinfulness through the week and the grace of God that we receive on Sunday morning instead of fully integrating God into the fullness of our lives. Because if God was fully part of every aspect of our lives, then we would probably live a lot differently. The choices we make would have looked different. Prayer might have filled more time in our lives than it currently does. And that would complicate things, wouldn't it? It'd really mess up this comfortable spot that we have going on. We couldn't continue doing some of the things we love so much. There's a reason why most people who proclaim to be Christians in the United States struggle to read the word of God outside of a church setting. It's because by doing so, it would actually change your life. And the deep, dark secret we don't want to share is maybe we don't want our lives to be changed. And if we're honest, it's because changing our lives would be a huge inconvenience. Yet Jesus isn't here to be an inconvenience in your life. Jesus isn't here to also sit in some compartment and wait for you to come to him as if he's a magic genie waiting in a bottle for you to come and see him. No, Jesus came not to be an inconvenience, but to set you free from the bondage of sin and death within your life. 
He went to the cross bearing our sins, past, present, and future, shedding his blood, raising three days later, not so that we could compartmentalize God and go on sinning. No, that so we could be transformed by the renewing of our minds so that the spirit would live within us and that everything we do with every step would be lit up by the lamp upon our feet, the light upon the path, that we would walk out of this darkness into his marvelous light. Yeah, it's going to change everything. It's going to make things look radically different. But that's good. Because then we're walking more like Christ. Now the good news about God's grace is this. He doesn't expect perfection from you the moment we say amen today and you walk out this door. But he calls you into a life that leads in holiness. A life that is lived for his glory, for you bear his image. And a life knowing that he's not gonna leave you, he's not gonna forsake you but rather he has this patient, loving kindness of grace to walk along with you as we struggle with our own flesh, just as Paul did when we do the things we don't want to do and don't do the things we want to do. But we're struggling and we're striving and we're enduring to live a life that is not just worship on Sunday mornings, but our whole living is a worship and a testament to the glory of God. So when Jesus says, render unto Caesar that which is Caesar's and give to God the things that are God's, we ask ourselves this one question. If someone were to look at my life, would it look like the world? Or would they see God? Amen. Um, (laughs) uh, I tell you guys all the time how uh, God's spirit is awesome and and I really wish uh, that as a worship team we we did sit down and plan things out of of the main point of the message so that songs could all match perfectly you know earlier we sang holy 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 uh, Lord God and then now our hymn of invitation, right? We, we just heard about giving all of the compartments of our lives to Jesus, and we're going to sing, I Surrender All. And as we do this morning, if you've never surrendered your life to Christ and you want to make that confession before this assembly this morning, come forward and do so. If you want to join First Christian Church of the Beaches and, and you believe this is a place God has called you, planted you to walk in faith together, knowing we're not perfect, and this isn't a perfect church, but that God's grace abounds and together we strengthen each other to walk in the ways of the Lord. Walk down as we stand and sing, I surrender all.